Hi, Ephraim. It's Brent again. Hi, Brent. That's better. How are things in Jerusalem today, my friend? Well, first of all, we got some fantastic, some fantastic news yesterday, which is that the Hungarian government announced that they indicted Shandor Kapiro for war crimes. Finally, finally. I was yeah. just reading the report, Muzzletov. And folks, yeah. if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Ephraim Zurov. He's in Jerusalem. He's the world's biggest Nazi hunter. And they nailed the son of a bitch. And forgive my language, folks, but this guy was a slime ball. His name is Dr. Sandor Kipiro. Just let me tell you, he was the head of the report's most wanted list. He was among the officers who carried out a massacre of at least 1,250 people in the city of Novi Sad, Serbia, January So they nailed them. Right. Listen, it, it, uh, it took over four and a half years since I delivered all the goods. In other words, I informed them that he's living at 78 Leo Frankel Street. Yes, sir. That uh, he was convicted. We got the original verdict sent it to them, and uh, I was beginning to wonder when, if ever, this is going to happen. In the meantime, as, I, as you know, he sued me for libel. Let's talk the libel about that. being that I exposed him as a Nazi. How can that be libel if it's the truth? Right, exactly. <laughs> can we talk about that case, sir? And, sure, you know, of this course. It's a great pleasure. Okay, great. How did it start off? How did you become aware of this piece of work, for lack of a better way of putting it? Listen, this has got to be... I'm telling you from my experience, 30 years, this is really one of the most amazing cases because it began with an email from a young man in Scotland who had a Hungarian girlfriend who wrote us that the Hungarians in Scotland often gather for social events and among the participants is an elderly Hungarian who brags that he actively was involved in the deportation of Hungarian Jews to Auschwitz. And he bragged about it. One thing, this is not Shapiro. One thing, this oh, is I'm not sorry. Shapiro. I'm sorry. Okay. okay, and this guy wrote, wrote to us, and I'll never forget his email. He wrote, maybe someone over there can research this and shut this guy up. That was the way he formulated his request. In any event, uh, he told us, he wrote that the guy's name was Stephen Brandon, which of course is not a Hungarian name. So I immediately wrote to him, I said, I need his real name. And, uh, you know, we want to know uh, where he was involved. He gave me his address and his Hungarian name, which was Ishvan Boydashel. And we started looking for him, but because he didn't know where he was involved. And this, this created quite a bit of a research problem, because obviously it's uh, a hell of a lot easier to find someone if you know exactly where he served. And then you can, you know, seek out witnesses, uh, 
documents much more easily than if you're looking for an entire country. So I went to Yad Vashem, the Israeli Research Center Memorial, and I had the help of their expert on Hungary, Dr. Basha Ked, and uh, we were looking and we couldn't find anything on this guy. All we knew, he was a master sergeant in the gendarmerie, and he had bragged that he had been involved in the deportations to Auschwitz. In any event, a couple of months later, a Scottish journalist came to Israel to interview me, and I told him about this story. And I said, listen, do me a favor. Call this guy up and tell him you want to do a cover story, not a cover story, you want to do a magazine story on the Hungarians in Scotland. He'll probably invite you to his home. While you're there interviewing him, stick in a question that would help us find out where he was stationed and uh, during the time of the deportations, because it was the gendarmerie who organized the deportation of 437,000 Hungarian Jews to Auschwitz in the spring and summer of 1944. So the journalist, his name is Michael Turney, he worked for the he worked then for the Glasgow Herald, really really terrific guy. Immediately volunteered to carry out the assignment. And it, it took a while for all sorts of technical reasons, but eventually he calls me and he tells me, listen, I have good news and I have even better news. <laughs> the good news is that Istvan Boydeshow served in a place called Mishkolt. Uh, Mishkolt is the sixth largest city in Hungary, and about 12,000 Jews were deported from June 11th to June 15th, 1944 to Auschwitz. So this considerably narrowed down the uh, research. It made the life a lot easier. But the better news was this. This was really amazing. He told me that on the wall in Boydashow's house was a photograph of a young officer, the gendarmerie. It obviously was not Boydashow himself. So Michael Turney asked Boydashow, who is this picture? You know, who is this guy in the uniform? So Boydashow said, whoa, that's Shanda Capiro. He's a much higher ranking officer than me, and we're in touch all the time. So bingo. You got him. And there was just one thing missing. Where does he live? <laughs> I called Michael, and I told him, listen, you know, you did a great job, buddy. Really, you're terrific. But one one very important fact is missing. Call up Ishman Boydashow and flip in a question. Okay. So he calls by the show and he finds out that he lives in Hungary. And at this point, to be honest, I was getting a little antsy because we had already once had a problem with a case when someone we exposed ran away at age 90 to another country where his situation was much better in terms of uh, not getting prosecuted. So I figured, okay, Hungary, we'll find him. And it's a whole story that I tell in my book. There's a whole chapter devoted to Shanda Kapiro in my book, uh, Operation Last Chance, One Man's Quest to Bring Nazi Criminals to Justice. And we basically narrowed it down. We found him. He was actually in the phone book in Budapest. I had two of my helpers who posed as uh, students writing a, a seminar paper on the gendarmerie. And he basically told them that his whole story, with the exception of the fact that he had helped organize a mass murder. In any event, I tell you, the one thing got me really nervous. This, this was amazing. Tibor, my two helpers are Tibor and Sylvia. So Tibor asked him, he, he's, he knows the routine. So at a certain point, he asked him, can he come visit him? Now, the idea was to check out his health because if he's about to die, then uh, we obviously can't put him on trial. So Capiro answered him. First of all, I mean, his answers were very lucid, and he was, you know, very clear, and he sounded really like he's in good shape. But when Tibor asked him, can I come visit you, he said, no, 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 I'm very old, and I don't want any new friends. <laughs> so, so, listen, I, I swear to you, Brent, from that minute, for the next two months, 
I had the worst stomachache I've ever had in my life. I was just nervous that here we found this big fish and we may blow it. So what happened was this. The day before I was supposed to meet the prosecutors and hand in the documents, uh, Sylvia and Tibor took me on a little excursion. They, they wanted it to be a surprise. They didn't want to tell me where we're going. So we were in Pest. We took a streetcar over the Danube. We're in Budo. We're walking. All of a sudden, I take a look at the street, at the, uh, street sign. Leo Frankel Street. I said, whoa, whoa, one second. That sounds familiar. That's where Capiro lives. Right. Okay, they're taking me to his house. Okay? So we go to his house. He lives in a, an apartment in a brownstone. And, of course, his name is on the bell outside. The idea was not to confront him at this point, but just to sort of, you know, look around. And lo and behold, he lives right opposite a synagogue, functioning synagogue. And we're sort of hanging around out there. All of a sudden, we see a woman. I see a woman leaving the building. So I say to Sylvia, get a hold of her, engage her in conversation, and find out what's going on. What's his state of health? Is he alive? Is he dying? I mean, did we make it in time or not? So Sylvia goes, starts talking to her, giving her a whole story. It's a song and a dance. She comes back, and she says, listen, you're not going to believe this. This woman is living in the building for 30 years. She knows Capiro. He came back, I think this was 10 years previously. This is in 2006. Came in 96. He lives alone. So right away, I was enormously relieved. My stomachache, by the way, disappeared <laughs> instantly. Okay? If he lives alone, that means he's, he's in good shape. He can take care of himself. But then this is the real kicker. The woman tells Sylvia that there is a custom in the apartment building to make block parties. That was the, all the um, residents are invited to participate in, in parties and social occasions. And I'm expecting her to say, but you know, Mr. Capiro is very old. He doesn't join us. No, 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 no. It's Shando Capiro who organizes the black parties. <laughs> so the next day I was able with, with, with great glee to tell the Hungarian prosecutors that Chando Capiro should not be making parties at 78 Leo Frankel, uh, 78 Leo Frankel Street. He should be making them in the Budapest jail. What was their reaction when you told them that? They got a good chuckle. Huh? <laughs> Listen, but they told me, they told me when I, first of all, they all knew about him. In other words, they knew who he was when I told them he was involved in Novi Sad and the murder. They all knew what that was. And they all knew that there was such a person. So they said, and, you know, perfectly uh, legitimately, uh, listen, we have to determine whether or not the crimes that he was involved in were, could be considered genocide, war crimes, or crimes against humanity. And if that's the case, then there's no statute of limitations. Mm. Now, the funny part of the story is that to this day, they never found his verdict in the archives in Hungary. Really? But I found it. I found it in Belgrade. First, I obtained a copy in Serbian, a translation into Serbian of the verdict, because the crimes took place in Serbia, so the Serbs were obviously interested. And then ultimately, with the help of my friends at the Museum of Genocide Victims in Belgrade, we got the Hungarian original, which we provided to the, to the, to the prosecutors. So initially, my request was that the original, uh, the, his original verdict, this, this is one thing I didn't mention yet, which is, was fascinating. All the people, all the officers who organized that massacre were actually put on trial in Hungary and convicted in 1944. But they were not convicted for murder. They were convicted for violating orders because it turns out that the massacre was a rogue operation. In other words, the officers on the ground in Novi Sad decided to start to carry out a mass murder without authorization from Budapest. And that, as a matter of fact, they would have murdered far many more people but after a few hours of killing, a plane landed on the Danube, on the ice, mm -hmm. 
from Budapest, and a high-ranking officer got out and said, what the hell is going on here? Stop this immediately. And up to that point, at least 1,250 people had been murdered. There's new research which seems to indicate that the number is actually higher. But, uh, you know, if not, they would have murdered many, many thousands more. As a matter of fact, I personally know at least two people who were taken to the river to be murdered. Mm -hmm. One was a boy of six years old. And I asked him, he was being held by his father on his shoulder, and I said to him, tell me, how much time between you and being murdered? He said, 20 minutes. If the plane had landed a half an hour later, he would have been shot together with his parents. Oh, my God. So, so, so the thing was that and there's no doubt about his involvement. He was, uh, he was prosecuted. He was sentenced. He was convicted. But what happened was that the Nazis invaded Hungary shortly thereafter, and they put pressure on the Hungarians to cancel the convictions. And these people had their convictions canceled, were given promotions, and were returned to service, which in the spring and summer of 44 could very well have included the deportation of Jews to Auschwitz. You know, uh, for, by the way, folks, i got to tell you who we're speaking with right now because I've been on the edge of my seat. I feel like I've just gone through uh, this whole cloak and dagger thing with a wonderful, wonderful outcome, of course. Dr. Ephraim Zurovs, our guest this afternoon, he, he's been on the show before, as you know. His book is called Operation Last Chance. Easy way to get all his materials, www.brenthollandshow.com. Click on that book cover. It'll take you right to a place where you can get the book right online. Ephraim, you know, I know the, the horrible stories. Of, and, you know, I'm sitting here with tears in my eyes. Red, at this, least we got a good result uh, yesterday. But, Thank God. Baruch Hashem, because, you know, I think of this little six-year-old kid and how many more didn't survive it. Right. That's the <sighs> thing. Listen, you know, I got to tell you something. I had some really difficult moments over these four and a half years. I bet. Since I gave in that material. And I, you know, I, I remember once in particular, I was invited to the annual memorial on the banks of the Danube for the victims of the, of the, of the mass murder. And it was the second time that I had been invited. I think this is in 2009. And I, I felt so, so impotent because in 2007, I had been invited and I told him with great optimism. I said, listen, we, we found Shanda Kapiro. We gave in the material. There's so much evidence against him, and I'm hopeful, and, I'm, and I think we're really going to be able to nab him. And now two years, an additional two years had passed, and nothing had happened. And, you know, on the one hand, I wanted to give them hope, and I tried my best. But inside, I was saying to myself, God forbid, if this guy gets away with it, what a disaster. Unbelievable. And you nailed the son of a gun, and uh, thank God for that. And thank you, everybody that was involved in bringing this um, slime ball to justice finally after all these years. Don't forget, folks, he's had a life. His victims did not. Exactly. And you know what? And this guy had the incredible chutzpah to sue me for libel. Can you imagine? He, I, I'm actually facing libel charges now. Are, are, in the they, criminal they, case... Will they not listen, dismiss them? Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, no. Let, let me just finish, Brent. I'm facing criminal charges of libel, and they can send me to prison for up to two years. Oh. Now, I don't think it's going to happen because obviously the facts are on my side and there's no doubt about his involvement. And, but before he was charged, I said to myself, this might be the only legal process against him. Or in other words, I, my goal was to turn the tables on him, in other words, to use the libel trial as a way of exposing his crimes. Mm -hmm. And in October, we met in court and it was incredibly dramatic 
because the judge gave me the opportunity to pose questions directly to Capiro. And I said to him, what were your orders? What were the orders you received on January, for, for January 23rd, 1942? Because they received the orders a day previously. And, and he started saying, no, no, we only look for terrorists. We only look for terrorists. Six-year-old I was saying to myself, like the six-year-old boy who I met as an adult who was 20 minutes away from being murdered. And then I said to him, do you know, are you aware of the fact that men, women and children and elderly were murdered there? And the judge disqualified the question because of some technicality. But what was fascinating was that uh, there's a very, very um, a wonderful group in Hungary called the Faith Church, which has been incredibly supportive. And they have their own television channel and, and media. And one of their reporters got a hold of Capiro at the end of the hearing. And she said to him, Mr. Capiro, do you have any regrets? He goes, no, I don't regret anything. I did my duty. Unbelievable. It was all uh, captured on film. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Now, Ephraim, you know, you've met millions of these, not millions, but hundreds not of millions. these. millions. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God for that. But you've met a lot of these crazy fanatics over the years. Is this a source of pride for them? Something that they want to brag about? Like you mentioned before, the guy was bragging about uh, in Scotland how he had transported people to Auschwitz. Right. Listen, we have cases like that. I, I think my greatest achievement, or, or certainly one of them, is, was uh, helping to bring the Commandant of Yasenovats, uh, that terrible camp in Croatia, called the nicknamed the Auschwitz of the Balkans, mm-hmm. uh, to trial in, in Croatia. And I'll never forget, uh, and I tell the story in the book, it's very dramatic. We sent a journalist, he, was, he had run away to Argentina, uh, we tracked him down to Argentina, and we found him in a place called Santa Teresita, and before... Uh, this, this encounter with him was organized. The journalist went to Belgrade to meet survivors of Yasenovats, and we arranged for him to meet with people who had survived the camp and seen the atrocities and you know, knew the story so well. And uh, he goes to Shakic's house, he knocks on the door, and Shakic comes to the door. Of course, he didn't call him ahead of time to let him know that he's coming, right? And he comes with a TV crew, and, uh, you know, are you Dinko Shakic? Yes. Uh, do you mind if I, uh, you were the commandant of Yasenovats? He goes, yes, yes. Do you mind if I ask you a few questions? By all means, come in. They're sitting in his living room, and the following conversation takes place, more or less. Um, tell me, uh, uh, Mr. Shakic, you were the commandant of Yasenovats. How do you explain the terrible atrocities that took place in the camp? So Shakic says to him, Yasenovats was a penal colony. Every country has penal colonies, and every person who is in Yasenovats deserves to be there. So the journalist, Jorge Camarasa, says to Shakic, and says, listen to me, you can't fool me. I met with Yosef Ehrlich, a survivor of Yasenovats. I met with other survivors of Yasenovats. I know exactly what happened. I know about how they tortured the inmates, killed them in ways that they, special ways they invented to prolong their suffering. So Shakic says to him, I'll never forget this, as long as I live. He said, you don't understand the problem with the Asenovats was they didn't let us finish the job. Oh, my God. They, at least 100,000 people murdered there. Oh. Serbs, Jews, gypsies, and anti-fascist Croatians. In other words, they even murdered their own people who were opposed. The, the country was run by the Ustasha, the Croatian fascists. Their goal was to get rid of all the minorities, and they, they set up a whole series of concentration camps all over the country. 
Yesenovitz was the biggest, the most important. Uh, but I, I want to add one little anecdote that I think our listeners will appreciate. Sure, go ahead. <sighs> Shakic had married in the camp. In other words, he met his wife in the camp. And listen, listen, listen. And a journalist got a hold of his wife right after he was exposed. And uh, he asked the wife what she thought of these accusations against her husband. So Nada Shakic said, and at this time we didn't know what she had done during this period. We weren't sure yet. She said, my husband is as innocent as a breastfeeding baby. P.S. Nada Shakic was a guard in the woman's camp. And her brother, her half-brother, was the commander, the director of internal security. In other words, she was in charge of all the concentration camps. Her name was Max Luberich, one of the most bloodthirsty murderers in Croatia, a country full of murderers. And uh, Shakic got the job, apparently, because he was a fanatic of Stasha and because he uh, had fallen in love with Nada at Jasenovac. Unbelievable. You know, Ephraim, where does this hatred come from over the years? You know, Israel Apartheid Week's about to start here in Canada through all the university system. And all these bloody lies about Israel and Jews are spread and they're trying to separate now. It's not against the Jews. It's against Zionism and Israel. And we have this. And everybody knows it's a crock of shit. It's anti-Semitism and its root. Where does the hatred come from? How do you feel about Israel Apartheid Week? First of all, I agree with every word you said. It's a total sham. There's no connection or similarity or parallel between the situation in the state of Israel and apartheid. And uh, the singling out of Israel for unfair criticism by people who couldn't give two dams about human rights anywhere else in the world, in Saudi Arabia or in China or in Russia, or in God knows how many other countries, is obviously, as you pointed out correctly, this is a new form of anti-Semitism. Exactly. Now, as we see, over the centuries, anti-Semitism takes on new forms, and, 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 for example, the whole issue of Holocaust denial, that's basically a new form of anti-Semitism. Precisely. And this is the same. In other words, this attack on Zionism, the, the, to, to deny the Jewish people the legitimacy of having their own nation-state when you have dozens and dozens of nation-states all over the world that don't bother, in other words, who, whose existence does, doesn't bother anybody. It's only the existence of a Jewish state Bingo. that bothers these, these, these paragons of virtue. I say it in quotation marks, of course. Precisely. Uh, folks, we're speaking with Dr. Ephraim Zaroff. He's the world's leading Nazi hunter. He took over the work. You know, Tom Segev, folks, was on the show oh, three, four weeks ago, I guess now, about his new book, Simon Wiesenthal, and uh, he was the first Nazi hunter, of course. And Mr. Zaroff has taken up that torch, and wow, is he marching forward. This is such <laughs> great news, my friend, about this you know, I, I search for words to try to be polite over the radio about these guys, but they are nothing but the scum of the earth. And, well, you know, listen, that's exactly the point. I, w I want to tell you one thing that in, in that context is very, is very important. One of the things that I've done is I've identified a syndrome, which I call the misplaced sympathy syndrome. In other words, when these Nazi war criminals are about to go to court, they make every effort to try and look as sick frail and unfortunate as possible in order to arouse sympathy and get people thinking maybe this is not such a good idea to put them on trial. 
But the truth of the matter is, what I say is this. When you look at a person like this, don't look at him and say, look, he, he, he's shaky, he looks frail, he looks weak. Think of a young man at the height of his physical prowess who devotes all his energy and strength to the mass murder of innocent civilians. He's still the same That's what man. you have to think. That's right. He is These still are the same. last people on earth who deserve any sympathy because they had absolutely no sympathy for their victims. And it's like Simon Wiesenthal said, it's not about revenge, folks. It's about justice. Not at all. Justice. It's about justice. Right. And as Deuteronomy tells us, justice, justice shalt thou pursue. And the interesting part is that it's so true. In other words, justice doesn't come easily. Justice doesn't arrive automatically. We have to pursue it. And that's the work that the Simon Wiesenthal Center does. Precisely. Just one last question, and then I'll let you go, because I'm just looking at the time, and I know in Jerusalem right now it's almost 10.30. That's PM, folks, by the way, in the evening, and he's been kind enough to come on the show at this late hour. Canada did not fare well again for the second year in a row. We got an F mark in terms of prosecuting that. Right, that's correct. And yet everyone knows that uh, Canada... Maybe the best friend Israel has right now in the Western... Certainly one of the best, if not the best. No question. We are very, very pleased with the record of the Harper government and with the Prime Minister himself, who's been absolutely terrific. How do we end up with an F? Okay, I'll explain to you very simply. It's a a decades-long problem, uh, which I think is, you could say, is inherent in the Canadian system which provides appeal after appeal for the people uh, who are under litigation. I see. And uh, the, the best way to explain this is the following. The, the Nazi war criminals came to Canada fit the same exact biographical profile as the ones who went to the United States. They're not Germans and Austrians. They're Hitler's Eastern European henchmen. Security police, concentration camp guards, things of the sort. In the United States, at a certain point, they streamlined the appeal process and lowered the number of appeals from seven to three. In other words, obviously everyone deserves an appeal, or more than one appeal. But if you're going to give a guy seven appeals, they'll just wear the process out and never get kicked out. In other words, the Canadians and the Americans both apply immigration and naturalization legislation. In other words, they... they punish people not for the war crimes, but for immigration and naturalization violations. I see. In the States, because the crimes were committed overseas and the victims were not American, this is what I jokingly refer to in my book as the Al Capone Compromise. In other words, the same way that they nailed Al Capone on income tax evasion instead of murder, so too they get these guys on immigration and naturalization violations. In Canada, they originally passed a law calling for criminal prosecution in Canada, but then they lost the Finta case, and the only defense that Finta had was superior orders, by the way, which was never accepted in any other court in the world. So once they saw that superior orders was accepted, they realized they couldn't possibly successfully prosecute anybody on criminal charges, so they did the right thing, and they switched to uh, doing, in other words, they adopted the American system of prosecuting people for immigration and naturalization violations. Now, the Canadians over the years have succeeded in stripping eight people of their citizenship, and many of them quite some time ago, but none of them have been kicked out, and many of them have died in the process before they could be kicked out. Whereas the Americans have a terrific record. They've stripped more, I think, 75 people of their citizenship, kicked out 60 already, and have taken successful legal action against 107 Nazi war criminals. Okay, so that explains it very, very well. As always, isn't he something else, folks? Dr. Ephraim Zaroff. And thank God we have a guy like this around to chase after these slime balls and bring justice to the most horrific moment in all of human history. I want to thank you so much for your work. Muzzle tough, muzzle tough, muzzle tough. 
off. <laughs> that is fantastic news. Listen, Brent, it's with the help of people like you and your show that we're fighting the good fight. And I want to thank you personally. Thank you, sir. Uh, for your own efforts, not only for, for the issues related to the Holocaust, but very importantly for, for defending the wonderful democratic state of Israel. Absolutely. And that I will always do that to the day I die without question. All the very best, my friend, and thank you again. And do stay in touch. Anytime you want to come back on the show, you know it's an open forum for you. Anytime you want to come Okay, get thank you very much. God bless you, my friend, always. You too. Shalom. Shalom, shalom. Thank you.